Hi there, and thank you for tuning in to Asking for a Friend. My name is Katrina Buffard, and I'm a clinical sexologist and psychotherapist. This podcast provides you with evidence-based information and real-world advice about getting to know yourself better sexually, and it covers all those topics that we would rather ask about for a friend. Just a warning, this podcast may contain conversations of a sexual nature and isn't suitable for kids. Professor Elna McIntosh is legendary in the field of sexual health in South Africa. I consider her to be a bit of a fairy godmother of sex and one of the most experienced and knowledgeable people working in the field. Elna is a clinical sexologist running her practice DISA clinic in Johannesburg with nearly 40 years experience to her name. She's also my mentor and was originally my supervisor. But she's also someone who's beaten breast cancer twice. And so as Breast Cancer Awareness Month draws to a close, I wanted to hear from someone with professional and personal experience about a topic we don't speak much about in relation to breast cancer. Alma, thank you so much for joining me today on Asking for a Friend. Thank you, Katriona. It's really nice to chat to you. We, we have known each other a very, very long time. And... Um, you know, I, I, I tell anyone who will listen that you are the reason that I'm doing this job and doing this work. So I feel very privileged to kind of uh, be able to feature you as one of my guests on a podcast, knowing that I wouldn't be recording this podcast and have the passion and the drive that I have if it wasn't for somebody like you. Thank you very much. I, on the other hand, have vicariously lived through your life and just... Um, felt very proud with yet every other degree that you used to get. I think like on par with your parents. <laughs> it's been such a pleasure watching your career just grow and grow. So, yeah, thank you. Well, well thanks. And, uh, yes, eternally the academic family, it seems, that we are. Um, you know, uh, October is Breast Cancer Awareness Month, and I felt that we – well, I felt that I had to do a podcast in October on a topic around breast cancer that I felt was relevant. And one of the areas of our life that doesn't just disappear because we have had a diagnosis or we're undergoing treatment or we've survived breast cancer is our sexuality. And in, in the time that I've been doing this work, I've been contacted by doctors, by partners, by patients to say, you know, please come and talk to us as a team of medical professionals helping women who've been diagnosed with breast cancer. Or please, can my partner and I come to see you to help us navigate how to reconnect sexually and intimately, you know, following um, successful treatment of breast cancer. And for me, this topic is so often overlooked. It's as if, as I said, it just, it just goes away entirely. And I, I really felt that as a, as a sexologist yourself, a clinical sexologist, and as a woman who survived breast cancer twice, I don't think there's anybody better that I could be asking for a friend about breast cancer and sex. So I wonder if you would be open to sharing a little bit of your own story of how this has affected you. So I was diagnosed with breast cancer when I was 36. And... Um, it's and now I am sixty plus, 
In fact, I'm 62 years old now. And when I was first diagnosed, I really just thought, please let me just get to 40. I need to get my child through school. It was, so you're almost just in survival mode when you are first diagnosed. And I think everybody goes into that mode from the doctors, just concentrate on your treatment. And, you know, once you've lost your hair, you've lost your breast or breasts, you've, uh, and, and a lot of things happen to you that you actually look at yourself in the mirror and you, well, first of all, you can't look at yourself in the mirror because you just feel distraught, disgusted. I can't even really think of the words back then. Like almost is, unwomanly maybe. A, a, a lot of those things of who would ever love me, will my uh, lover stay, leave. A lot, of, a, lot, a lot of women feel that the men will leave them. Mm-hmm. And often, um, so if I put my professional hat on, often when I do see a patient who says, my husband left me, I'm sitting there, he was probably going to leave you anyway. Mm. So it's not necessarily, if he just loved you for your breasts, we better off. I wouldn't say that in a first session, but <laughs> as we work, yeah. as we work around I things. But, um, and, and yeah, so then I just went on with my life and life carried on. And then my breast cancer returned at age 48. And that actually hit me. It was almost like a, I just sailed through the first lot, maybe just uh, put it behind me in, in a way, just ignored it. Um, so at age 48, it was far more real for me. Um, and the treatment was also very different. And at 48, I wasn't in menopause yet, but they, they push you into menopause with all the treatment. So a lot of other things also happen. So I think a lot has to do with age when it happens to you. And as we now see very young women, you know, we see women that are young, women that are 18, 19, uh, in their 20s. So a lot, what stage of life you are at, because for, for women that have, that have not had children, we, we have to have a very different conversation with them. Like bank your eggs. Uh, you know, you might be 18 and not think of motherhood, but who knows? Because once you have your chemo or your radiation, motherhood's not going to be an option. But you might so, not even be able to do that because the fertilization process of the eggs may aggravate the cancer as well. And I know that's yes. in, in, you know, extreme cases, but yeah. Mm. So the question of motherhood so, gets called into it, doesn't it? So it's, um, yeah, so my story really just now, yearly, October make, make me very aware of, oh, it's breast cancer month and it's time to book your next mammogram, but not in October. <laughs> so I usually go in my birthday month. In a, my birthday month, which is July, I do all my, all my tests and all my things that have to be done. And that is if there's one advice I can give to somebody, um, whether you come from a history of cancer or, or not, if, if you have a family history of cancer, at age 30, 35, you start your sonos. Otherwise, at age 40, you start your mammograms. But early detection is absolutely, and I think that's what I often say, I'm still alive because of early detection, yeah. because you have to do your tests. But I must tell you, something happened now. I also got COVID. I feel like I'm a super-duper survivor. You are I've a super-duper survivor. <laughs> Two breast cancers and 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 COVID, but there was a there, well there is a lot of similarities almost between COVID and any uh, terminal terminal condition, um, or 
you know, cancer had a lot of stigma way back in the days, but nowadays it's very acceptable. But with COVID, it, it really carries stigma and shame. But, but why I'm comparing the two for myself is I was waiting for my results uh, and it, my COVID results came at 2 a.m. in the morning. And it came to me directly because we tested under my name. And I sat till the sun came up before I decided I must phone somebody about this. And it's that agony of waiting for your results. So I think for any anybody going just through testing, whether you're going to test positive or negative, the relief and all those things, but um, breast cancer for a lot of people are just, it is like a death sentence. And frankly, it's not. Mm. So that's my story. I think, you know, your, your survivorship is quite phenomenal. Um, I'm hoping for eternal immortality for you, but I know you probably don't want that. Um, you know, in your, in your clinical training, you know, you, you trained in the States and I like to think of you as the godmother of, of sex in South Africa because you came back and brought all of these skills and expertise back to South Africa for you, uh, for everybody else. Um, and you've spent your career teaching others, mentoring others like myself, um, supporting patients, helping couples and individuals. And in your training, were you ever given any training on sex and cancers and how to help your future patients in this regard? So um, I worked at two, I worked in two different states. So I was with Dr. Dumina Renshaw at the Jesuit Catholic Medical School, Loyola where there were a very big focus on couples therapy and everything was around couples. And then in San Francisco, where anything just went at the Institute, we probably spent more time looking at um, under the heading of disability, but cancers would fall under disability. And we spent a tremendous amount of time. Um, and one would have thought that at a medical school, we would have spent more time around all sorts of cancers, male cancers, female cancers, but we didn't, we didn't. We, we focused on relationships there. And in California, where, um, where we um, were exposed to a lot of things, I had brilliant training around um, all the cancers, not just breast cancer. But yeah, I felt I came back with very good education around that. That's so fantastic to hear. Because one of the things I hear from medical professionals in South Africa, including oncologists, is that there is very little training around sexuality and sexual health. So while you were a sexual health professional being tra trained with oncological knowledge, the oncological professionals are not being trained with any sexual health knowledge. Is that your experience as well? Yes, again, again, I think oncologists are trained to just focus on getting people better or otherwise, if it is end stage, to make people's lives as comfortable or just to withdraw um, any treatment. So, I mean, some of the, the oncology centres actually do employ social workers or psychologists. I mean, you have a, cl a close link with, with one of the, the groups as well. Yes. There's multidisciplinary groups. Um, I think nowadays people are far more aware of pull everybody in, you know, from the dietitian to the plastic surgeon to everybody. So, um, and, and I, I form part of a breast cancer group. So I, I'm sometimes amazed 
the input from, from all the different professions. But I think often people also hide behind, well, I'm the surgeon, this is what this is my job, I'm the dietitian, I'm just gonna focus on food. You know, sometimes it overlaps. Mm. I think all disciplines should be trained in it, from the physiotherapist to the radiologist to everybody. Because yeah. we would do such intimate work. You know, um uh, yeah. I, I absolutely agree with you. I mean, if if a woman is diagnosed with breast cancer and she successfully undergoes treatment and she's a breast cancer survivor like yourself, what are some of the impacts that that process physiologically and psychologically would have on on a woman's sexual response? So for me, once you've been through the treatment and your hair's back or your hair's still coming back or... Um, it, it is about self-love, self-care, and actually making peace with your body. Because if you can't accept your own body, you can't expect somebody else. If you must always apologize to your body as well. I usually um, say to people, come with a list of questions you want to ask me. And then I can go through and ask whatever weird and bizarre you think. Because maybe sometimes we just have to explain physiology not anatomy, but physiology to people about the sexual response cycle. Mm. Because women's bodies are put into to menopause um, from the medication that they're getting. A lot of women are put on tamoxifen for five years, which does a lot of body changes. And just if you have got a 25 or 30-year-old patient who's suddenly put into menopause, you know what, I'm in my 60s now, I've been through menopause, I kind of now I make peace with my fat stomach and whatever. But if you are young and vibrant and suddenly your body is not your own body anymore and and you've got to talk to them about lubricants and and she's never in her life had to even think about lubricating. She just naturally lubricated. And now suddenly she's got to go out and buy. And people are embarrassed and they don't know what to buy. And they, you know, they can go into a big uh, pharmacy. And, you know, it's very confusing. So I think people just grab the first thing that they can get. And because the, your mucosa, your... Um, and, you, and your, your mouth, if you think of it, your vagina and your mouth are so similar. It's mucous membranes. When you're having chemo and radiation, you get ulcers in your mouth. You get ulcers in your vagina. Sex becomes painful. And often people think, oh, can I even ask my doctor about these things? Patients are often so relieved when I say, have you got ulcers in your mouth? You probably have them in your vagina as well. And they, oh, I, I thought I had an STD. So sometimes um, it's far more of an educational session in the beginning, you know, before it's actually a therapeutic session that you have with patients. And I always encourage partners to come with, whether it's a same-sex couple or a heterosexual couple, bring, 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 come along. Let's talk. Men are also often scared they're going to hurt their wives. Mm. Even after surgery, she might have perfect breasts now. They're just so lovely. And he doesn't even want to look at them because he's just scared he might damage them. So I think sometimes we just got to also in, in, um, encourage, not encourage, wrong word. Maybe um, just put their minds at ease. Normalize their experience. Yeah. Mm. 
I mean, it's, it's, it's so interesting. You're mentioning all of the, all of the, you know, some of the different things that could happen. And I guess no two women's experience is the same in, in how it can affect them from the way that they view their body to how their partner views their body, their relationship they have to their breasts and their partner's relationship um, to that, to vaginal dryness and the fact that you don't naturally get lubricated anymore. Um, the psychological as well as the physiological changes are quite big. And, and what about anatomical changes? Is there a kind of a shrinking of any of the tissue, like in the, the small lips of the vulva? It can happen as well. Again, it depends on what treatment. You know, some people just have surgery because it was maybe a, a stage one, um, but some people have advanced cancer already, so they need far more uh, drastic treatment, aggressive treatment. Uh, but they, we see atrophy because, um, because uh, they, we put people in early men, we put women in early menopause you know, for, for a duration of the period, and then um, and we stop... I think that's also another thing for young women because we stop their periods. So menstruation often for a young one is important. And speaking of that, contraception, that's often not a discussion that's had with women. You know, if you, you can't be on a hormonal contraceptive anymore. So your choices are extremely limited, especially after your treatment is finished. Um, so it's very difficult for people in long-term relationships to... In, to say you have to use condoms. You have two options, condoms or um, a copper IUD. So there's so many discussions that are around health, medicine. It's quite clinical discussions one has to have with a patient. Um, and often they just need, I call them the feely touchy talks as well, the importance of, of just... You know, sex is very overrated, Catriona. You know that. What did you times a week and twice on the weekends? I mean, there's no right or wrong. There isn't. And, and in um, people just touching, it's that when I mean, we go on about touch and touch, but I can't, in, I can't emphasize it enough. The importance of touch. You know, if somebody's just had a big surgery and in the beginning, there's no expectations of her to, to be having sex. I mean, it's so personal and it varies from couple to couple. But I often just say to them, you know, just take a break. Just get used to all the medication. Because if you're on chemo, I mean, you are vomiting and tired and all, a lot of things happen. But if you're not having chemo, you're having radiation, you don't necessarily have the nausea, but you have more of a tiredness. So maybe go to bed early and have sex in the morning. You know, sometimes we just have to give very practical advice to patients. Not, and, and if possible, encourage a partner or get somebody else to Google. I always say that please don't go Google yourself. <laughs> give your husband that job. Because it is so scary. And if you Google, you're just going to get very, very medical things and then you die anyway. Because, you know, with Google, you always die. <laughs> yes, yes, you always die according to Google. The worst is, is death. And I think it is so important to, to encourage. And that's why when I do talk to people, you know, I've lived 
a very long and full life and did more things. Of, I mean, I only went back to do my PhD after a cancer diagnosis. And I think that's important. Rediscover yourself. Cut those people out that drain you. You know, those ones that come to tell you about their auntie that also died from breast cancer and, the, and her daughter. And you just think, please, you know, there's certain things that we don't need to hear. But yeah. sometimes, um, and that would be practical advice for friends or, or whoever. I think, I think it's so interesting that in so many of these interviews that I'm, I'm, I'm doing for this podcast, the, the concept of permission comes up in almost every single discussion I've had so far, and I'm sure we'll continue to. And you and I know, as sexologists, that permission is paramount to the work that we do. And I don't think it's any different here in the context of breast cancer, because what you've just said is, you know, you work to give couples the permission not to have sex if they're feeling a certain way or to have sex in the morning, not at night. And a lot of the stuff you've been saying is around expectations that the, the woman or the couple may have and about leveling out those expectations, bringing those expectations closer to reality, but also telling them, Hey, it's okay. If you don't feel like sex, you don't have to feel like sex right now. You know, and when you have kind of survived this and when you are learning, you know, to reconnect with yourself in different ways and you're recognizing what's important to you in life, what type of sexual relationship is important to you and what does that look like? I think if we look at touch, touch is crucial to us as human beings, both physically and psychologically. We know that from you know, the plethora of studies we see out there from, you know, the 1950s on orphans in Romania to nowadays looking at the effects of touch during the global pandemic and the lack of touch. And yeah. I think that something that often happens is that so much pressure is placed on a couple to have sexual intercourse that the, the feelings of inadequacy are very common. Now, that's, that's on top of the feelings of inadequacy a woman who's survived breast cancer may already be feeling about her body, about being a woman, femininity. And I think that a lot of the time when I'm seeing clients who, who have survived breast cancer, there's almost a need to help them, I wouldn't even say relearn, but you know, start a new sexual template of what their, their connection sexually is going to look like? So I always, I still like a non-implicit um, model. Yes. Where P stands for permission and then LI for limited information because we can't throw them with all the textbooks. We give them the necessary information um, S is for specific suggestions. And so that would be, you know, use a water-based lubricant or there's such a great range if you just look on my sexual health, what they can get online. And then the IT stands for intensive therapy. But if we actually do the plus part well, the, inten the therapy, it actually doesn't have to be intensive therapy. Yeah. It sometimes just needs a few sessions and maybe a follow-up again, you know, when, when she is better or later on or checking in again later. But my mentor, and I still love her to bits, and she is no more, um, Professor Domina Renshaw, her four T's, which is time, trust, talk, and touch. And so the T again for touch. 
so important and the time timing has actually got a lot to do with it as well you know if you've just had chemo it hits you two and three days later so that's not maybe really the time to be talking two and three days later get over that again or as we go forward but um the the, the time we we need to make that time just as we talk about date the night and these things make that time and the trust part because often women become paranoid and they they don't trust their husband anymore or their partner is going to leave me i think he's having an affair because if you're in recovery, you often have so much time that okay, nowadays you've got Netflix and fabulous other things to watch. But if you're just sitting there and and you were had a you were working before and suddenly you've just got all this time at home. I remember I used to watch that channel where you can buy things. You know, what is that channel called? Suck like City channel. channel. Very mock that one. Then I used to watch these this channel because I mean it's many years ago. And then I think I cannot, I won't be able to live without one of these whatever stupid things. And I must buy now. I must call them now. So sometimes we become hyper focused on really silly things. So so maybe it is time to just find other interests, other things, and and keep our minds busy. So that we don't become paranoid about this man might leave me, this woman might leave me. Mm. I think trust is such an important one, isn't it? Because you're also having to learn to trust mm. your body again as a woman. And this body just failed you. You're very disappointed in this body of yours. You know? okay. And um, I also think the role that your breasts played in your life and that. That's because some women are so flat-chested that it's never been a big deal. But somebody who's got a who has like a, a D or an E or sometimes a G cup, can you imagine having a mastectomy and then you'll be off balance? I mean, nowadays we have modern medicine with amazing surgeons. Um, we are blessed in this country. So even in our government sector, if we look at Helen Joseph uh, with the plastic surgeon, uh, the, the breast surgeon, uh, Professor Carol Ann Ben, where the same person that you'll see in private practice, you'll see in the government hospital as well. So they are amazing. And, and around the country, there's more and more breast units. And if I look at um, Pink Drive, for instance, they go around the country with their big pink trucks and there's mammograms available for women. Um, now over lockdown, they went um, oh, They went to the Northern Cape, they were in KZN now, they're in Limpopo this coming week. And these are services that are there for women and we must encourage people to make use of it. It's a free service. And as you said earlier, you know, early detection is so important. Um, I wonder if, if we can maybe look at the couple um, who are now having to navigate their, their sexual connection following a, a kind of um, surviving, following surviving breast cancer, um, beating breast cancer. You know, you, you mentioned touch as being so important and um, using that placid model as, as we do in our therapy where permission, limited information and specific suggestions are just, you know, if we can do that, it can sometimes be enough. But what would be perhaps some of the more specific suggestions you would give to a couple who were trying to navigate reconnecting sexually after beating this, this cancer diagnosis? So... 
often people aren't realistic. You know, the, a lot of people always read the Durek sex survey of the year, and then it says this country has sex 365 days a year, and, and so it carries on. We have to, I think, give realistic expectations to people as well. Loss of libido affects, well, in my practice, 60% of patients that come to me come because of loss of libido and they haven't had breast cancer. So, um, I mean, apart from the breast cancer ones that do come. So you also go through the normal stages of any relationship. And, and loss of libido can be for so many other reasons without being ill. So to be realistic, if she is not feeling like sex, you say, and again, to, to normalize it for her, but why is, why, what else is happening? It is important. And then again, what happened in their sex life before? Because often once people have come for therapy, they, their sex lives improve because for the first time they are actually allowed to talk about things. And maybe the woman now admits she's never had an orgasm in her life. So now, post-breast cancer, she's actually learning new things. And, and for me, it's so important that it's almost like rediscovering. It's almost like having new lovers. This is my new lover. It's new things. I think that's a great way of looking at it. And I think there is that level of anxiety, of course, that new lovers may have. Um, there's, of course, a level of a different kind of anxiety that would be present there. But it's about about as I, as I like to look at it, like writing a new sexual template, writing a new sexual blueprint that you can use that is maybe, you know, starting off softer and more slowly and more, um, more with touch than this passionate, lustful, you know, kind of sexual interaction that a lot of couples have in the early stages of their relationship. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's really about slowing things down. Um, and I know that, um, well, we would we would suggest that that whether you, you whether you're kind of you've beaten a you know you've beaten breast cancer or not one of the techniques we suggest is sensate focus which focuses so much on touch and on the different erogenous zones of the body and erogenous zones being kind of any area of the body that's heightened sexual stimulation but I think something that's very important to to say then is with focusing on different areas of the body and the breasts and nipples being an erogenous zone, there's also perhaps the real need to communicate with your partner around how you're feeling um, about that part of your body. Maybe wearing, um, you know, a beautiful, a beautiful, silky, nice feeling top just to cover your breasts when you first start engaging in kind of any sexual, I don't know, any sexual encounters with your partner again, or having the lights off if that helps you feel more comfortable, or asking your partner not to touch your chest and, and your stomach or your shoulders if those are areas anywhere around the breast or the nipples that make you feel uncomfortable. Um, I think that giving, again, giving permission to the, part, to, the, to the couple when the partner's there can make such a difference to her level of comfort because very often I think we can have the, the woman alone in our office and she has to go home to her partner and kind of relay what it is that we've said. But when it comes directly from us rather than through the messenger, it's kind of like yeah. the doctor says so, right? So that's a no from me. You will not be engaging in any sexual intercourse yet. We're going to get you back there gradually and slowly and um, one step at a time until you're feeling comfortable with it again. You know, some of the, the obstacles that I have is um, the, the single woman 
or the divorced woman who suddenly have to literally start with, and we uh, just now said you're finding a new lover, but like with your husband, but now you are starting off. And and a lot of women say, I don't know how, how am I actually going to tell this man that, you know, what you see is not what you're going to get. And so that is always an interesting discussion for me to have with my single ladies um, because a lot of you've got to give them a lot of confidence, whatever. And you know what, again, if he's going to leave, he's going to leave. But a lot of men, and sometimes um, they, they bring the partner with and we, we work through it together, the new partner. And then often these men go, she's so brave. She's a warrior, you know. They come up with these wonderful, you know. I love her more now than I know these things. And so I think that often, if it's a new relationship, it's one of those things that you've got to get out the way because it's sooner or later you're going to be intimate, and you don't want to just shout surprise. (laughs) Nowadays, well, pull up your top and go surprise. But I must say, nowadays. They, the, the surgeons do nipple sparing. You know, for a lot of women, the fact that they lost their, their, their nipples, they, you know, they're okay with they, They've got these reconstructed breasts. but um, And there's these fantastic tattoo artists mm. that make 3D nipples. You know, yes, there's no feeling, but the woman feels better. But they also do nipple sparing surgery nowadays versus a, a radical mastectomy in the old days. Um, though sometimes it's necessary and they still do them. But often women say to me, my breasts look uh, much better now than what they looked before. A lot of women are so proud, they can't wait to show me their breasts. I love it. You know, <laughs> you see the confidence in these women. Um, the other thing is, it is almost a wake-up call and like you're smelling the roses of, you know, that one is is oxygen thief and I'm going to end my friendship relationship with so-and-so because my, you almost start taking more, um, you're aware of every hour counts for me. Every day is precious and I must, you know, be positive and spend my time with positive people. But saying that for some people, the depression is so deep and so deeply set, and often they were depressed even before the surgery. And on that point, it is very important that you make be honest with your doctor what medication you are on. Well, sometimes you with a psychiatrist and a breast surgeon, and the psychiatrists are giving you Zoloft or Paxil or Valium, and that tamoxifen doesn't like that. So drug interactions. So... The one is not, you know, you can have an uh, antidepressant, but it's not working against your tamoxifen. Otherwise, tamoxifen isn't going to work. Am I making sense? Yeah, I know you're making perfect sense. And I think, again, it's it's the importance of of being being able to ask these questions of your healthcare providers and, you know, or the healthcare providers asking these questions mm-hmm. so that, you know, sometimes the patient may feel very embarrassed or ashamed to admit that they're on antidepressants or they've actually never had a desire for sex, you know, since long before mm. they were diagnosed with breast cancer. So, you know, it's, it's again, permission, um, being given permission to, to explore these topics or, 
feeling that they have the permission to ask these questions. Um, but you, you know, you made such a good point about women who aren't in relationships, who are divorced, who are single, and their experience of their sexuality once they've beat breast cancer. Because I think that there, there, it, I imagine that there's a real added level of anxiety there of what it's going to be like when, and perhaps an added level of pressure. And I think I've heard, unfortunately, too often where a woman who's been, you know, in her 40s or 50s and, and has beaten breast cancer, but has just made the decision to be on her own and not have any sexual um, relationships because she, you know, according to her is not perhaps, you know, interested in that. But when you dig a little deeper, you find out that there's an immense fear there or an immense yeah. shame there or who would want me or who would like me. So I think that that was such a relevant and interesting point. And then the other point you made about, you know, being able to have, you know, better looking breasts perhaps, or, you know, have a better relationship to your breasts perhaps than you did before you were diagnosed. You know, the, I, I've seen the work of, a, of a, a tattooist in Cape Town, Honey Fowler, who she does the most incredible 3D tattoos. And I could not tell the difference between yeah. a real nipple and her 3D tattooed nipple that she had done on a, on a woman. And she, she did incredible work. And, and uh, I'll definitely have her on the podcast, I think, in the, in the future. But, you know, to empower women again in their bodies and help them to feel better in their bodies. And I think that, you know, if we think about plastic surgery, if somebody doesn't like their nose or, or their breasts mm. or their bum, you know, they're able to go and have something done about it with a plastic surgeon if they wanted to they could afford that and if it was an option but you know when we we're overcoming something like breast cancer if our body has been affected you are able to take steps if you can to you know feel better about your body again both psychologically but also through things like having your nipples tattooed um having you know uh buying lingerie that makes you feel good uh reconnecting with different parts of yourself what about if we were to talk Oh, can we can we talk just briefly about how women who are single can kind of explore their sexuality on their own after surviving? I mean, is there anything specific or practical we can talk about um, a woman who doesn't have a partner that she can do? So in South Africa, we are blessed with Desire, a great website you can go online. But, but you know, it's not even always about sex stories. Some women are also turned on by erotic literature. Mm. Um, I think it's very important that that we keep the old brain ticking over as well, because as women we like to read. You know, we started off reading Mills and Boone when we were sixteen and seventeen, and so it moved on. And there's a, a lot of great writers, and then um, just by yourself watch an erotic uh, movie. Self-pleasuring so important, and if you if you feel uncomfortable with with masturbation on yourself, maybe just touching yourself in and massaging, rubbing, finding pleasure, uh, going to a spa where somebody else is touching you, not in a sexual way, just in a in a touch way. Mm. And actually, touch coming back to it is so important and it doesn't always have to be a sexual touch. It can just be a soothing touch, but you also touched on the fact that the brain 
um, the play, the brain plays the biggest role in our response to, to anything sexual. And the brain is, is, is not necessarily an organ, you know, once you've beaten breast cancer is not an organ that's affected and is because it's our biggest sex organ, we need to continue to engage it. And, you know, what was Mills and Boone in, in, you know, many, many years ago is now like a fantastic app like Dipsy, which is a, um, an app with erotic audio um, and has the most wonderful, well-acted stories, realistic stories of all different ranges and topics that, tell a story for kind of 10, 15 minutes and then kind of gently stop and let you and your imagination continue the rest of the story. Just being able to listen to something like that and engaging your brain sexually, even if you're not touching yourself, even if you're not using a toy, is just bringing pleasure into your mind and subjective arousal. That I think is something that is a really good idea for anybody just wanting to slowly get back into responding sexually, experiencing the thoughts of sex, the erotic thoughts of sex. That's why I love listening to you and I read and I stalk you. You know I stalk you. <laughs> I stalk Instagram because I learn so much from you. You know, you are the, it's a whole new generation of things that is out there that I'm, I'm just like, this is too confusing for me. You know? So this is what we need. We need another hundred Katrianas in this country. Thanks. People just people are hungry for factual information. No. They really are. They really truly are. But Elna, we we've gotta end off the episode. I could talk to you, you know, you and I have known each other for a long time and we, we both can talk until the cows come home. But the the last question that I want to ask you that I ask all my guests at the end of each episode is what has been the most surprising thing that you have learnt? since you know surviving breast cancer twice but also working with women who are navigating their sexuality um once overcoming and beating breast cancer so the most surprising thing was for me um the amount of women that actually have breast cancer i mean our statistics are it was the second highest breast cancer in the world Ugh, the second highest cancer um but how women just don't go for their tests, but for a number of reasons as well. But what has surprised me, and I think I've surprised myself, is that for somebody who thought I wasn't going to make 40, we're now thinking of my 70th, well, maybe first my 65th birthday party. You know, I've, I've surprised myself that I've lived this long. So um, I just celebrate every day. I'm happy to wake up. I, I, um, I'm blessed. That's really what I can say. I have amazing friends, unbelievable colleagues. And, yeah, well, it's, I, life is good. I feel that that is a, an important message because if you are saying the thing that surprised me the most is how many women – are, are diagnosed with breast cancer or ignore the lump that they feel or don't go and have their annual mammogram or annual checkup. And that includes mm -hmm. pap smear if they can, if they can have a pap smear, um, if they're able mm -hmm. to do that. Um, and, 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 you know, an annual breast check, um, there's such a, a, a clear need for women to be taking more responsibility for themselves because, you wouldn't be with us if it wasn't for early detection and for you taking responsibility for your own health. 
So, and I'm very grateful for that. I really am. So, Alna, where can people find you if they want to, to talk to you, if they want to ask you a question, if they want to engage with you on, on social media? Are, are you, are, I know that as you, you were mentioning, you know, I'm on Instagram and posting quite a lot, but wh- where can people find you on social media to reach out to you? So I've got Disa Clinic, which is the name of our clinic. But um, I think all of us are part of my sexual health. So yes. I, always, I just always say to everybody, just go and look you don't have to look for me. There's lots of us on that mysexualhealth.co.za. I'm so proud to be part of that, even though I'm the granny there. But it's, you know, I feel I'm surrounded by like just all this knowledge. Hey, there's, there's like now a lot of us on that website. Beautiful. Yeah. So much information. Everything in a nutshell. I don't so, think you're the granny, you're the prof, you know, you, you I'm are the prof. You are the prof. And you know what? I feel, I feel, um, particularly, particularly chuffed because my picture sits next to yours on the website. So if my sexual health is going to deem me as being in line with you, then you know what? I've done something right in life. <laughs> Oh, but uh, I've loved speaking to you. Thank you for sharing your personal story and your professional experiences um, with me and my listeners today. And to many, many, many more years of mentoring students and helping clients, you know, couples and individuals to overcome sexual difficulties. Thank you. Thank you. This was lovely. I enjoyed talking to you today. Me too. Got a question you'd like to ask for a friend? Reach out to me via my website or Instagram and I'll be sure to include it in a Q&A episode soon. You can subscribe and follow this podcast on your favorite podcast platform. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please rate and review it.